Well, good morning, Grace. It's great to be with you today. It's a beautiful day. You could be a lot of places. I'm happy that you're right here. Uh, also, it's good to be able to gather on this Mother's Day. I know that uh, a lot of times we think of how thankful we, we are for our own mothers. Uh, and, and if you are a mother, I hope that you, that you have been celebrated. But it, even if you are just a woman who is giving all that you have, I believe that God continues to use you uh, in a motherly role, even in ways that we don't even imagine or we don't even think of. I mean, it, whether you've had uh, nieces and nephews or, or you've had uh, friends who have children, I guarantee you that God continues to do amazing things by calling people to be mothers. And so we, we celebrate you. With, I know that it is an often tiring and grueling and thankless task. Uh, and so we are so thankful for all, all of you women who I know that I, first of all, I wouldn't be here without my mother. Second of all, I wouldn't be where I am without my mother. Uh, and third of all, uh, I would not be where I am without all of these strong women that have just been so faithful that have really helped me through my life. I hope that, that you have shared in that experience as well. So thank you, mothers. Uh, as we continue through our series, Abby mentioned that it, uh, we call it Foundations because we're looking at what the foundational things are in our lives, our journey of faith. And there's probably no better way to do that than to, to spend this time in the Gospel of John. John is very clear that his intention in writing this Gospel is so that we might come to know and believe who Jesus truly is. And so that's what we continue to do today. Now, we've been walking through that. If you've been with us since we started this, I think it was at the end of January. We've made it now. Ready? Milestone. We're into chapter six now. Woo! All right. So chapter six, and we're going to look, uh, this is a long chapter. And so, and it's very, very significant. It contains a lot of these core elements, uh, foundational elements of our faith and what it means to, to truly follow and trust Jesus. And so we're going to take three weeks to go through this, but today is the, the first installment and you're here on the right day because this is one of the most famous, if, if not the most famous accounts in all of the Bible. People know of this, uh, whether they've been going to church their whole life or they've just maybe heard about it in pop culture. It's commonly called the feeding of the 5,000. Okay. It was where Jesus does this amazing miracle and he feeds all of these people that have come to the hillside outside uh, in, in the hill country in Israel. And so we're going to, we're going to get into that, but right off the bat, this very idea of 5,000 we kind of get deceived a little bit about that because, well, there were more than 5,000 people there. Uh, Matthew's account, so let's just pause here for just a second. This, this story is so foundational, so important, that all four gospel writers write about it. It's the only miracle outside of the resurrection of Jesus itself where all four gospel writers make note of this. So this that should clue us in that there's something really important about all of this that we need to, to pay special attention. But Matthew, in his account of this, tells us that 5,000 was just the number of men who were counted, that it did not include women and children. So there were clearly women and children there. And after you add all this up together, most scholars say, well, there were probably maybe 15,000 people there. 
maybe even 20,000 and maybe even more. But we're, gonna, we're just going to assume that there were at least 15,000 people there. So a huge crowd, more than 5,000, which, which really helps us understand what is the, the, these, these impossible circumstances that these disciples and Jesus are, are walking into when it comes to, to the miracle that Jesus performs. So it's important. It's recorded in, in all four Gospels. And it also is foundational to our understanding of who we are as Christians and what it means to follow Jesus. Now, maybe you're here today, and this is the first time you've ever heard of Jesus, but maybe this, this story is, is something that you've, you've heard about before and you wonder what this is all about. And we have honestly, whether it's culturally or even inside the church, we have kind of turned this into this little sort of hokey little story, like, well, it's all about sharing and that's really not what this story is about. This is a miracle. And the number, this 15,000, this is significant because it means that we have a lot more confidence that this actually happened. Because unlike today, where you can pretty much say anything you want uh, and use any platform you want, and you don't have to worry at all about whether or not you're being truthful in the least, in this particular time, people had very little. Their word was their bond. Their word meant something. Be speaking truthfully and honestly was, was, was very important. And so if, if 15, say up to 20,000 whatever people became aware that this story was going around because it started being shared right after it happened by word of mouth, and then within 20 or 30 years, we have written documents that were being shared around that told about this, well, there were enough people that were not just heard about it, but there were enough people that were there and participated in this. That without that, there's no way that the whole Jesus movement would have ever gotten off the ground because nobody would have taken this seriously. But when you've got 15 to 20,000 people that are going around saying, uh, I was there, not only did I see it, but I participated in it. Well, that gives us a greater sense of confidence that this isn't supposed to be just a, a fairy tale or a little legend about uh, the good things that happen when we share. No, this is a miracle that God did so that we would learn more about who he is. And that's why John writes about it here. That's why the other gospel writers have written about it as well. And so we're going to look into this to find out how this transforms our understanding and our lives and gives us a greater awareness of knowing who Jesus is so that we might go out into the world and make him known to others. But before we dive in, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we ask you now to come right here, right now, and open our ears that we might hear and receive your word. But Lord, not just so that we can, you know, kind of hear it in a simple sense, but so that it penetrates our hearts and transforms us into who you're calling us to become. Lord, we thank you that you don't leave us to figure this out on our own, but instead you lead us and you guide us by the person and the power and the presence of your Holy Spirit. And so we ask now in these moments, Lord, that it not be my words, but it be your transforming word, your word that, that brings the dead to life. We ask you to do that in this place right here, right now, transform us, change us so that we might know you and follow you more closely than ever before. We ask this in Jesus' name.
Amen. Okay, so John chapter 6, we're going to look at the first 15 verses. So verses 1 to 15, uh, and I'm going to read it all the way through here first, uh, and then we're going to go back and kind of see some of these critical faith elements that are sprinkled all throughout here, and we'll focus on a few of those. Okay, so starting in verse 1, sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, it would take more than a half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one just to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Well, here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. So notice right away in the very first verse, it says some time had passed. We don't we don't really know how much time had passed, but we know it's a significant amount of time. Because of the reference in verse 4 to the Jewish Passover, it, it could be actually mean that it's been a whole year. If you remember all the way back when we talked about John chapter 5 a few weeks ago, at the beginning, it said this, uh, that Jesus had been around because of one of the Jewish festivals. It never specifies which one. So it might be that this is six months later. It might be that it's a year later. But the reason that's significant is because Jesus is at the height of his popularity here. He is doing all kinds of signs, wonders, miracles, whatever you want to call them. He's doing all these amazing things, and he's getting everybody's attention while he's doing it. So people are really taking notice. So this time that has elapsed between where we were before and where we are now, just remember that he continued to do these miracles over and over and over again. Matter of fact, all the way at the end of uh, the gospel of John in chapter 21, John, the gospel writer says, hey, these are the things I wrote down so that you might believe. But Jesus was doing so many amazing, amazing things all the time that if I wrote about all of them, I suppose that the earth itself could not contain the books that would be written. So this idea that Jesus is basically a superstar, he's got amazing amounts of attention on him, which of course is driving the religious leaders nuts. They can't figure out what to do to put a stop to this. They're, they're, they're plotting, they're scheming. Remember last week we talked about how just based on what Jesus was saying and the claims he was making, they were already plotting to kill him. But this, this popularity wave is, is still rising because people want to know about this. Now, did you catch that it says that they were most interested 
in this because of specifically the signs, the miracles that he was doing as he was healing people, healing people. Now, healing is, I think, something we tend oftentimes to take for granted because we, we do have access to modern medicine, to all kinds of advanced technology, treatments that never have existed before. There's all this kind of stuff. So when we, we have a medical or a health problem, uh, we at least have some options that can, it, if they can't cure whatever it is, they might be able to at least help along the way. But at this particular time, in this particular place, in this particular culture with these folks, well, I mean, just a simple fever could be the end of the line. So there was a level of desperation there that I don't think that we tend to really appreciate. Now, some of you, this doesn't sound too far off because maybe you've either visited other countries where desperation is still very much a very daily type of thing. Maybe you uh, are, are either from a country like that or maybe your circumstances right now in this country are very desperate. We're all coming here with different levels of understanding and different experiences. We're all coming together in this. But just remember, if this sounds like, well, I don't really know what, what that's like, maybe let me ask it to you this way. Where right now in your life are you desperate? Where are you feeling a sense of despair and defeat in your life right now, because we all have feelings of desperation at one point or another. And if we're not in a situation right now that seems very despairing, well, we've either been there before or we will be there at some point in the future. It, it can be anything. Maybe it's, maybe it's a job. Maybe it's, it's a loss of a loved one. Maybe it's an addiction. Maybe it's emotional or, or physical pain or, or, or some sort of chronic issue or some sort of situation in your life where it just seems like everything is so overwhelming. Where are you desperate in your life right now? Where are you feeling a sense of despair? You're not alone in that. So don't ever think that you are. But when it comes to what we're talking about today, the disciples were feeling that same kind of sense of despair. They were also feeling desperate because they had been doing ministry for pretty much like 24-7 for extended periods of time. They were exhausted. They were overwhelmed. And some of the other accounts fill in some of the gaps. They, they need a break. They need to get away. So Jesus is trying to take them on a little retreat for a little recuperation. But then they were also grieving the loss of John the Baptist. Remember, we've talked about him as John the Baptist, but also John the witness. He had been executed by King Herod. And so they were mourning the loss because, remember, some of Jesus' disciples started out as disciples of John the witness. So there was all this going on. They were feeling overwhelmed and they were feeling desperate. And I think we can all relate to that at least at some level or another. And when we start to feel desperate and when we start to, to feel defeated, we also start to feel pretty insignificant, right? The problems that face us oftentimes seem so massive, so big, so complicated, that we wonder, well, what, what could I ever contribute to this? What, what difference could it possibly make for me to be involved in this, that, or the other? 
how could I be a part of making a way forward? It just, it seems too much. It seems too impossible. It seems like there's no hope. But the truth is that in the hands of Jesus, the significant becomes, or the insignificant becomes significant. In the hands of Jesus, the insignificant becomes significant. So we're going to talk about how we learn this in this scripture today, starting in verse uh, five, I want to take a, a specific look at this. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him. Again, these circumstances are overwhelming. This is where Jesus turns to Philip and says, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? Now, that's a fascinating question, isn't it? I mean, Jesus sees the people coming and he wants to know from Philip, well, what are you going to do about it? Talk about feeling uh, underprepared, you might say overwhelmed, uh, no answers. And so he says in verse six that he asked this only to test him for he already had in mind what he was going to do. And so in other words, he actually wanted, he wanted Philip to confess how desperate the circumstances really were, how inadequate Philip really was to deal with it. Philip goes right to logistics and problem solving and, and trying to, well, he's doing the math and he's saying this, this really doesn't add up here. I, 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 don't, I don't know. What, what, what are we going to do? But Philip thinks that somehow Jesus is asking him this question because Jesus doesn't know what to do. And there's a very interesting thing. Right? How many times in our lives are we faced with impossible circumstances and we think, well, if I could just figure this out, if I could just figure this out, then I can make a way forward. But Jesus asked Philip this question. It says to test him. Well, what, what's the test? Why did Jesus need to test him at all? Well, Philip is somebody that has been with Jesus this whole time. He's been with Jesus the whole time. Jesus doing amazing. Remember, more miracles that could, could be contained in books and fill the earth, the whole thing. Jesus is doing these amazing things. Philip has not only seen it, he's been a part of it. He's lived it. And yet, when these impossible circumstances are now right at their feet, as the crowd is coming toward them, he asks Philip, where are we going to buy bread for these people to eat? Now, Philip, you would think, maybe, would turn to Jesus and say, I can't do anything about this. Obviously, this is way beyond my pay grade. You're going to have to get involved, Jesus. You're going to have to do some of that miracle stuff we've been seeing all along. You're the one that's going to have to. I don't know what to do. But instead, he's so busy caught up in doing the math and trying to understand, like, well, how are we going to solve this problem? He's focused more on the how is this going to be possible rather than this where question that Jesus is asking to, to kind of get him involved. He wants Philip involved. Now, interestingly enough, in the other accounts, it, it, each other gospel writer talks about how the disciples themselves were involved in the distribution of this miracle. They were involved in passing out this food. But John only says that Jesus was doing it. Now, do those things seem to be in conflict? I, don't, I think the disciples helped, but I think John's point in saying that Jesus did it is so that we don't get confused about who's really doing the work, who really is the provider here. 
Because it's so easy for us to get caught up and confused and thinking and trusting and pursuing things that are not really the true provider. That we do it at the expense of seeking the true provider, Jesus, alone. So Jesus works through other people all the time to do the kind of providing work that he does. But that doesn't mean that he's not the ultimate provider. Sometimes we get that a little bit confused. But Philip does none of that. He doesn't say, well, Jesus, what are you going to do about it? You're the provider, so how are you going to provide here? Instead, like I said, he's doing the math. And how many times in our lives do we get caught up doing the same kind of thing? We get caught up in, well, in trying to understand the real nature of the impossibility of our circumstances and what could be done that we fail to recognize that Jesus is there, Jesus is involved, and Jesus doesn't really want us to think of him as sort of the last resort. But don't, don't we do that all the time? Don't we think like, oh, if, if I'm facing problems, if I'm facing challenges, if I'm facing issues, then I'm going to try this first and this second and this third and this fourth. And then and if, if I go through and exhaust everything that I'm capable of, all the ideas I have, everything I try, then maybe as a last resort, I'm going to get Jesus involved. But Jesus does not want to be your second choice or your third choice or, or your 50th choice. He wants you to go to him first. He wants you to go to him first. And he wants you to give him everything. Not just some things, because all of us like to just keep something back for ourselves. We, we tend to live in this, and maybe more now than, than we have in uh, recent years, but we live in this sort of scarcity mindset, ravaged by fear, thinking, well, I, I, I can let go of a lot, but I can't let go of this. What is that for you? What is it that you're holding on to so tightly right now because you're afraid you might lose it? Well, Jesus is coming to you today in these moments and saying, I want that too. I want that too. Come to me first. Come to me with everything. And then uh, we get to Andrew, disciple number two. Well, maybe, maybe he'll do a better job here. You know, I mean, he's also been with Jesus this entire time. So let's see how he does this. Look at uh, verse nine, the first part here. Uh, Andrew says, well, here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. Now, I kind of think of this, even though this, the context, John is not always great about writing all the details in here. He kind of just gives us what he thinks we need to know in order to understand the story and, and what he wants us to understand about it. But I kind of imagine that there's this young boy. He's got this little, I would call it a snack, says five barley loaves. First of all, barley is, is known as the grain of the poor. It had been for centuries. So the fact that this kid has these barley loaves, that in and of itself tells us that he's very poor. Okay? He comes from a poor area. Galilee, the entire region, was not an affluent area. It, it was not full of, of all things going really well and a surplus. People were trying to survive on a day-to-day -day basis. 
And this whole area was ultimately controlled by the Romans. And what little these people did have was always at near constant risk of being taken away through high taxes and levies by the Romans. So even family land that had been passed from generation to generation, the Romans could take that at failure to pay tax without any kind of notice at all. And so these people were, to say desperate, is, is a very real thing. They're, they're desperate, like we said, not only in some cases for healing, but they're also desperate for food. For food. Food is like a daily struggle. And so here's this little boy. And I, I think we should understand that as, well, here's a, a boy, but the key about him is that he's willing Keep that in mind as we continue to go, because right after this, you know, we talked about the first part. It's good. Andrew brings somebody to Jesus. Hey, that's good, right? Bringing people to Jesus is always a good thing. But then look at the second part of verse nine. It says, but how far will they go among so many? And that pesky little three-letter word, but really does a number on us a lot of times in our faith journey, in our faith walk. Because how many times we find ourselves asking, well, but how will this work? But how is this going to be made possible? But, but what if this doesn't work out? But I only have such a little amount to give that it couldn't possibly make a difference. But remember, we just got done saying that, that in the hands of Jesus, even what is insignificant becomes significant. I think that's what we have going on here with this little boy. He's got this snack, which again, this five bar you and I might hear five barley loaves and we think, wow, I couldn't eat five loaves of bread. Get that out of your mind. We're talking about, in this particular case, this is like, we should think of as crackers. They're like, he's got five crackers. So not loaves like, let's slice it up. No, these are just like little wafer cracker type things. It, it basically amounts to a Lunchable, right? If you know what that is, the, the kid has a Lunchable. That's what he's got. All right, and Jesus sees this. Andrew brings him to Jesus. And then listen to what happens. Verse 11, Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. Now, we tend to focus so much on the miracle piece of that. And I'm not saying it's not amazing because of course it's amazing. I mean, imagine that Jesus is making food where there is no food. He's just calling it into existence. He, he's making as much food as necessary to feed all these people. He's, matter of fact, he's making enough food that the Lunchable becomes leftovers, right? More than they could eat, there was food left over. That's an amazing thing. But, but when we only focus on that, we only talk about that, we only spend our time focusing there, then we miss this little piece at the very beginning of verse 11. Because Andrew, remember, he brings the boy with his Lunchable. Here's a boy. He's got five uh, little barley loaves and two little pickled fish. Okay, first part of verse 11, Jesus then took the loaves. He took it. I want to really drive into that for just a moment. He took it. The boy offered it up 
And Jesus took it. He took it from him. Now that is a lot scarier for you and I than we might tend to want to admit. Because the idea of offering something to Jesus and then having him take it. I mean, he doesn't say to this boy, well, thank you very much, but I've got it from here. He doesn't just snap his fingers and, and make all this happen. He takes the little snack from the boy. And in so doing, he takes what is insignificant. This boy could not have been any more significant in the grand scheme of things. Young boy, no power. We don't know if he has any family around. We do know he has this little lunch, which is a poor person's lunch with five little crackers and two pickled fish. So this boy could not be any more insignificant in the eyes of the world. And when it comes to understanding the power and the way the world works. And yet, this is exactly who Jesus uses in that moment to do this amazing miracle. That happens in our lives as well. But, but we don't want to give it up to Jesus. We, we don't, we don't want to give him, we don't want to really give him anything. I'm not saying that I'm any better at this than you are. I'm saying that it's a very scary thing to consider wait a minute, you want me to give up control? You want me to give up control of, you want me to recognize that everything I have and everything I am comes from Jesus and therefore it all belongs to him? And I'm just a steward of these, not only things, but all of these, of life itself that has been given to me by Jesus. I, I'm just a steward. I don't, I don't like that. I would rather be in charge. I would rather be in control. even though it doesn't work out oftentimes the way we want or the way we would prefer or when we want, the reality is when we give ourselves to Jesus, all of ourselves to Jesus, then he is the one that does amazing things. This, this is a relationship that we have with him where he's saying, give it to me, trust me, and then... He takes it, just like he said he would. He takes it. This is good news for you and I because over and over and over throughout the pages of Scripture, we see God doing the impossible. We see people coming to the end of themselves and people confessing, I, I can't do anything about this, and we see God intervening. We see God coming in and God doing what only God can do. Because in Jesus... God has proven that he has the power to keep his promises. If God has promised it, then he will deliver on those promises. He has the power to keep his promises. You and I, not so good at keeping promises, are we? But the faithfulness and the goodness and the righteousness of our Lord means that in Jesus, God has already proven to us. He's already proven to us that he has the power to keep his promises. Do you do you believe that today? Do, do you believe that? Now, I'm not saying if I cornered you in the hallway, would you just say it? I'm asking, does your life reflect that? Does the fruit of your faith appear in your life in ways that other people know that, oh, wait a minute, it doesn't seem like you're caught up in this, that, or the other. It seems like your trust is is maybe even in something that comes from out of this world. 
I don't understand. Tell, tell me more. Why are you not more worked up about this? Why are you not more anxious about this? Why are you not more afraid about this? Why are you not more angry about this? You meet these people all the time and you say, well, I don't get it. What gives? This doesn't feel right. What's going on? Tell me more about it. Well, the fruit of faith, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, are those the kinds of things that people are experiencing with you in your life as you live out this life of faith? Or are we just saying, oh, yeah, oh, yes, I trust Jesus. I trust Jesus, you bet. And do we think of it more of a slogan or a bumper sticker than we actually do the life of faith and surrender and what it means to live lives of, of sacrifice, of sacrifice to one another so that they might also, whoever needs to hear the good news of Jesus, hears it. Are we, are we willing to trust and give up our control? Because if we do, then just wait and see what God will do. Because this is the God that takes the lunchable and somehow makes leftovers. And you'll notice that, that he makes leftovers, not just, I mean, this little kid that gave up his lunch gets more than he can even eat in return. Yes, that's true. But it's also more than 15,000 people can eat. And it's enough that even though these disciples, we, you know, we had two for two here, but let's just assume that's representative of all the disciples here in terms of their thinking. They were not full of belief. They were not full of trust. They were full of unbelief. They were full of doubt. Like, how are we going to deal with this? And here they have Mr. Resurrection himself, who is standing right there, who is bringing the dead to life right there with them. And they don't recognize, they don't have the eyes to see or the ears to hear or the faith to trust at that moment that Jesus can do what he has said. He's got this. And so instead, in the middle of all of that, you know, they're giving the wrong answer while this little insignificant boy is offering up his lunchable. Okay, now when you think about what that means for you and I and in our lives, remember that no matter what you've done, no matter where you come from, no matter what you might be struggling with, Jesus still had enough compassion on these 12 disciples who didn't get it that each of them got a basket of more than they could eat. There were leftovers. So our Lord meets us where we're at and helps us not to stay there, but helps us get to where he's leading us. But we've got to follow him. Are we willing to do that? Part of that is giving up control over the very things that have control over us because we've got, we've got them so tightly grasped that we just are not able sometimes to move on. And yet Jesus has proven that God keeps his promises. So no matter what you're facing today, no matter if this right now in your life is a time of great sickness or great health, if it's a time of, of great frustration or, or it's a time of, of peace or it's a time of struggle, a time of being overwhelmed, a time of being afraid, a time of being angry, what, whatever it is, when we give that to Jesus, then he will take it. He is powerful enough to deal with with whatever it is that faces us. And he wants to be 
our first choice, the one that we run to. Because this, after all, is the God who is powerful enough, who, who spoke the heavens and the earth into existence, who, who, who made the stars with nothing more than the breath of his mouth. This God can handle whatever it is. He is not limited by whatever limits us. And he is certainly not limited by the limits we try to put on, on him either. He is all about this generosity, this abundance of grace and mercy and reaching us wherever we are to bring us to wherever it is he wants us to go. He's got the power to do it. But that, that's the problem. Is when we hear something like power, we get all kinds of tripped up because we, again, think of power only from a worldly or an earthly perspective, the kingdoms of this world. And, and you know, we, we say things like, uh, well, it sure would be nice if everybody could just live by the golden rule, right? We like that, at least the sentiment of that. But we also, at some level, know that the real golden rule is whoever has the gold makes the rules, right? Because that's what's really happening. And so how do we live in this world where we think like, oh, it's all about power, influence, dominating others, you know, all this kind of, that's the way the world works. And yet, Jesus comes in here and, and he's, not, he's not interested in taking over the worldly kingdom that these folks are living in. He's bringing an entirely new kingdom with him. And as this king of this new kingdom, this kingdom of God, the world does not understand what he is about. Doesn't understand what's going on, doesn't understand what's coming, doesn't understand what to do. And so you and I might be quick to judge and say, well, look, and let's take a look at verses 14 and 15. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who came into the world. That's good. That part's good. Pause it for there just a second. That part's good. They, they connected the dots. They understood that this Jesus was the prophet that Moses had predicted all the way back in Deuteronomy 18. Moses had said, one day there will be a prophet who's kind of like me who comes, but that prophet will speak with the voice of the Lord. Okay, this Jesus, they've made that connection. This is that prophet. But then... They want Jesus to get to work doing what they think needs to be done to fix their earthly situation. And you and I, of course, we can relate to that. Isn't that what we spend a lot of our time wanting and, and trying to do as well? And yet Jesus is not a king like kings are or were at that particular point and in some parts of the world still are now. This particular king, this Jesus, did not come to be served, but he came to serve. Well, that's incomprehensible to most of us because that is, that is absolutely not our definition of power. Matter of fact, we're so resistant a lot of times to give up control to Jesus because we think that that makes us weak. Don't we? We think it's a sign of weakness. And how many times when you're talking about uh, what has happened to you or the way that the Lord has intervened in your life or in somebody else's life, how many times is it right on the edge of almost taking it back? When, when somebody says, wow, I, I just can't imagine that that happened. And we say, well, 
I kind of think it might have been the Lord at work. Why aren't we more confident in this? Jesus is doing amazing things in our lives and in the world all the time. Why don't we actually expect that God will deliver instead of just assuming like, well, it just must have been an accident. What would it be like for us to, to live in the confidence of the faith that Jesus offers to us and gives us, the faith that, that clings to the promise that God has made to us? That this, whatever you're facing right now, is not the end of the line. It's not the end of the circumstances. The victory has already been won. It's already been won by this powerful God who was so powerful that he sent his one and only son to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. He solved the real problem once and for all. Sin. And when it comes to our even understanding of sin itself, well, we oftentimes think when when we think about our own sin and the ways that we've turned away and turned our back to God and tried to do it our own way and live without him, we don't even want to give that up. We don't even want to give our sin up because oftentimes when I talk to people, they think, well, the sin, that's the best part about my life. I don't want to give it up. What are you talking about? I love it too much. And yet here's Jesus, the miracle worker, the one who doesn't deal in a scarcity mentality, but instead shows us more generosity through his grace and mercy than we would ever imagine or ever deserve. And so this Jesus comes to you right now, right here, and he asks you to give over whatever that is. And so maybe it's a challenge or a struggle that you're dealing with, or maybe it's sin in your life, and maybe you've, you've tried to hold it back and you've said, well, I'm just, I'm not gonna let this go. You can have everything else, but not this. Maybe today is the day to just turn it over. But then maybe you're here today and you're saying, look, I am a follower of Jesus, but I don't feel like I make any difference at all. I feel like I'm just maybe that little boy with the, with the little Lunchable, and that's all I have. And here we have this amazing truth that we have a savior and a God who has come to us and said, hey, give it to me. I'll take it and just watch what I'll do with it. And as he continues to, to make food on the spot, he shows us his abundant love for us. He will do that in your life as well. So what do you need to surrender today? What do you need to give up today? He shows up and he shows us the way. And, and that's true even when it doesn't work out the way we want or the way we think it should. Because he does it his way in his time for his glory. So will you follow him today? Will you, will you trust him today? Will you walk with him today like maybe you never have before? Will you believe that he is exactly who he says he is, the Messiah, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift of your grace, your mercy. We know, Lord, you, you don't have to give it to us because we deserve it, because we certainly don't. But Lord, we're so thankful that because of who you are, that you have showered us with abundance 
Help us to walk in the confidence of that abundant grace and mercy. Lord, help us to know that it's, it's you alone we can trust. It's you alone that can keep your promises. It's you alone that are faithful. There is no one like you. You are the faithful one. We thank you, Lord, as we leave this place today, that we go in the confidence, not just in our own strength and our own willpower, but in your strength, confident in who you are and what you will do. Thank you for how you continue to make us who often feel so insignificant a significant part of your will for your glory. And it's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.